Please support the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com. The climate is changing at an accelerating pace. Thousands of residents and tourists have been evacuated from the region. No one country can solve this problem. There's really one key message that emerges from this report. We are out of time. Welcome to Climate Change and Happiness, an international podcast that explores the personal side of climate change, your feelings, what the crisis means to you, and how to cope and thrive. And now, your hosts, Thomas Doherty and Panu Pikala. Well, hello, I'm Thomas Doherty. And I am Panu Pikala. And welcome to Climate Change and Happiness. Our podcast, the show for people around the globe who are thinking and feeling deeply about climate change, the personal side of climate change, and other environmental issues. Obviously, climate change is one part of a larger suite of challenges that we have and talking about our emotions. And today it's Panu and I, and we are doing some of the original work of this podcast, which is trying to sort out some of these challenges that we confront personally and that people come to us, questions that people come to us with. Um, and today um, we're getting into this question, this issue, this suffering that people have when they, when they feel uncomfortable or they feel grief going out into nature. So rather than getting this restoration they're seeking, they have to confront these sad and negative feelings and it gets in the way and they don't know what to do about this and so we're going to talk about this and so listeners you can see how this fits for you but panu tell me tell me more about this problem how you're hearing about it and how it's being discussed in the world yeah that's something that came up prominently for example when we were organizing facilitated discussion groups for people who wanted to talk about their ecological emotions, especially so-called eco-anxiety, ympäristöahdistus in, in Finnish, so this was in Finland. So clearly, people who care about deeply the modern human world and who are highly aware of what's going on, it may be difficult to bear, and so many things may remind people of ecological threats and damage. So the potential triggers for feeling some kind of distress are so numerous that it's complicated. I'm also strongly reminded of uh, interview research done by my dear colleague Caroline Hickman from Great Britain, who has been interviewing you know, children in various parts of the world and asking about how do they feel about climate change and what are their thoughts about it. And this following is an uh, excerpt from Caroline's 2020 article, We Need to Find a Way to Talk About Eco-Anxiety. So here's Caroline. A number of young people told me that they no longer felt able to go and spend time in nature because it made them feel so angry and sad and full of grief at the loss of nature that it was now becoming unbearable for them. And then follows a quote from a child who is saying, All I see is lovely trees, and that reminds me that we are killing all the trees, and then I feel angry and sad, so I won't or can't go there anymore. And if people stupidly tell me that time in nature is healing, 
all I can say to them is that all I see is dying animals and plants. Mm. Mm. All I see is dying animals or plants. So that's a pretty strong case of becoming so affected. So, so what thoughts comes to your mind, Thomas, when hearing that example? Well, it's it's a, it's really a beautiful quote, and it speaks to the directness of young people when they come upon these things. I'm I'm I'm. I'm just thinking of Greta and other young, you know, climate activists who are really calling out, calling out these issues. I think this is really important. I think myself, I've experienced this problem. I know you have, Panu. Anyone listening who's done any environmental work of any kind, whether it's conservation work or landscape work or humanitarian work, has had to confront this. So. I have had this question come up recently in my therapy training group as therapists are struggling with this also. Mm. Uh, and so there's two things going on here. One, it's novel and new for many people. Like you say um, in, our, in our planning conversation, the extent of this is really important. Many, many people are being able to tap into this now because many, many people are having consciousness raising about environmental issues and climate change and things like that. Although we can look back in history and, and find many, many people that have already trodden this path. You and I have trodden it. We'll talk about ways that we cope and we'll, we'll look at other, you know, well-known environmental leaders that have, that have spoken about this. So the first thing that I, I, I tell people is that, first of all, your feelings are true and accurate. You know, that the feelings task is important. Let's just stay with the feelings, mm-hmm. validate, elevate, create. Let's validate this, put it on a pedestal, not just sweep it away particularly young people. No, let's stay with this. This is important. Tell me more about these feelings and then let's get creative about them. When did it start and and what do you do about it? How do you cope? So that creativity, like in our recent episode with Kim Stafford, it's all about sort of having a a blank page and, and, um, but then realizing as I always tell myself, if I can think about something that I know someone else probably already has, and then I can start to sort of see this, you know, what I tell the therapist is that, Simply put, this is not a barrier, it's a doorway. This is a threshold. This is a rite of passage. So it's a normal part of our development of our environmental identity. Uh, It's stark when these young people have such sad um, and troubling things to say, but it is a sign of development. It is a sign of moving forward. So that's the way I would start talking about this um, as as a kind of a, a call to adventure and kind of the hero's journey kind of model. And obviously we want to, we want to refuse the call because we don't want to let go of our innocence um, and our, and our kind of idea that nature is there for us and pristine and safe. But that's a child, ultimately a childlike idea that these young people are being, it's kind of being stripped away from them, unfortunately. Mm. But I think there are ways to, to nurture this and move forward. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing, sharing all that. And one phrase that was used, I think, in an early 2020s report by Lise van Susteren and colleague was the wo- working wounded, referring to people who work with environmental matters or simply work outdoors and so can't escape the facts that there is much happening at ecosystems. And it was very difficult for a long time for many of these people because the working communities didn't really have resources of encountering the emotions. As you say, Thomas here, you know, staying with the feelings and then uh, 
and, uh, but in, instead in many natural science communities for example mm-hmm. it's a totally new idea to talk about emotions at all not to mention emotions related to what's going on in the natural world so people felt very isolated and there was lots of unhealthy suppression and repression going on and some people like Phyllis Windel mm-hmm. in the 90s wrote already a very uh, very good article about the grief on, of environmentalists and that goes much deep much deeper in history as you say say Thomas yeah one of the gifts of the eco-psychology movement particularly in the 90s and that that original eco-psychology uh, edited volume was that people pulled a lot of these ideas together and there is there is a good chapter in there on restoration so many people have had this insight that my Restoring myself and restoring nature are part of a, a, a same process. Um, there's, there's, there's many things. I mean, I, whenever I get into this, I always go back to the famous quote from Aldo Leopold uh, from the San, San County Almanac. You know, one of the penalties of an ecological education is that one lives alone in a world of wounds. Much of the damage inflicted on the land is invisible to laymen. An ecologist must either harden his shell. This is a dated quote in some ways. Uh, in terms of the gender and things like that, but it's an oncologist must either harden his shell and make believe that the consequences of science are none of his business, or he must be the doctor who sees marks of death in a community that believes itself well and does not want to be told otherwise. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's very much what this young person is that you quoted is channeling this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't need to live alone. First of all, that's part of the issue that most eco anxiety and eco grief, the, the problematic aspects of it are because we are alone and we don't have anyone to share it with. So we are we are doomed to live in a, in a damaged world. Humans do impact the, the natural world, uh, and there is no way of getting around that. But we're not doomed to be alone with it. We're not doomed to be, you know, ignorant of it or, or in suppression of it. But but obviously these young people are are having a meta awakening. They're awakening to the, our 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 economic system and our legal system, which in which you know nature and trees do not have any intrinsic rights right Mm -hmm. and that we do have to kill a lot of trees and harvest a lot of trees whether you use the word kill or harvest is is notable here but we do harvest trees Mm -hmm. and of course native cultures have created and have always had ways to understand the reciprocity of using trees and animals and having a relationship with nature that that provides a ceremony for all of this interbeing and interconnection in, in young people and in our in our capital society we don't have any ceremonies to to hold to hold all this sort of stuff so it is quite jarring to have this waking up syndrome as they call it particularly with young people yeah definitely so the awakening or realization can be very difficult especially if there's no community to help you with the awakening or realization and in many human societies there's been ancient traditions designed to deliver uh, potentially traumatic information or you know these deep facts about human condition and living on earth uh, mm-hmm. for example related to mortality and and so on so uh, something like that would be needed also in relation to the times we are living li- living in in now also and many concepts have been used of the state where people encounter these painful truths. Some have been applying frameworks related to 
post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, or getting creative and using terms like mid-traumatic stress disorder because we are living in, in the midst of it. Mm-hmm. And I think personally and as a researcher that some of that scholarship about post-traumatic stress is very fitting, but of course we need care in how we use concepts of trauma, for example, and concepts which have the word disorder, so that may have some unwelcome implications. But but some elements of the scholarship, like, you know, becoming uh, quite shaken uh, by the images and thoughts, and they are intrusive, it's difficult to get get away from them and even when you go to a, to a deer, deer forest you start seeing burning trees in your mind so that has some some profound links i think with what the scholars of post-traumatic stress are about yeah but how about you thomas as a therapist how do you see this these issues yeah well i i think we need to be careful um as particularly mental health therapists need to be careful because their their tools are are ultimately about disorders and about trauma, and I don't know that I don't know that I, I necessarily want to ch- uh, saddle young people with with trauma in this regard. I I I think, in the healthiest sense, this is this is simply a, a, a learning process. It's a mm. it's a it's a way of learning our environmental identity, uh, and it's more. I, I think of it more as a rite of passage in a building capacity versus um, some sort of trauma. Mm-hmm. I, obviously, there are traumatic feelings, but I, I'm not interested in sat- saddling a young generation to all be trauma survivors and victims. I don't think that's very inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what our ancestors would like, or I don't think that's what Native cultures would, would ultimately think about, uh, or Aldo Leopold, or, or, or Rachel Carson, or any of these people. Mm-hmm. So we have to be careful. If your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so uh, using some of the healing uh, concepts from from trauma work, but not not necessarily using pathology as the lens through we see the world. I, I don't find that very inspiring. Mm-hmm. Rose, Rosemary Randall, who we who the last two folks that we had on the podcast, Rosemary Randall and Kim Stafford, were great examples of people that were approaching this issue, but in a very growthful way, in a very compassionate and ultimately inspiring way. Rosemary Rowe used William Warden's grief work in, in her work with people that were confronting their own mm-hmm. climate, you know, climate impacts. And, you know, there are, there are, so there are roadmaps here for us, right? You know, accepting the reality of the loss. We have tasks when we're going through ecological grief. And so when someone is having this barrier of being out in nature, there's some steps. It's accepting the reality intellectually and emotionally. The emotional piece is the hard one, obviously. And then working through these, sharing the feelings, understanding nuanced what the feelings are, anger, grief, loss. You know, I have my grief map that I use with people. So it was like, are you grieving something from the past? Are you grieving something currently? Are you grieving something that you expect to happen? Um, and all the, you know, being with that disorganization. So there's a period, it's a rite of passage. Like once you open that door and step in, it is confusing and we don't know and our old our old ways don't serve us anymore and i might go back to a i might keep keep going to a nature place and be confused about it time and time again until i can see that place in in a new light um and adjusting to this new environment and new skills new sense of self and putting my energy into the into this new world which is oh i need to help caretake and have a sense of stewardship for these places. It's not just the backdrop. It's not just a product or a commodity or an Instagram photo, right? You know, young people are sucked into 
the beauty and the adventure of nature and they think they can partake of it. And then they, they also, the shadow side comes along with it and that we don't see the shadow side on Instagram, right? Uh, we don't have a shadow Instagram, uh, you know, out there. So, um, so anyway, there are listeners should know there are steps and there are people that have trod on this path before. Um, many, many people, we talked about Rachel Carson and the idea of sense of wonder recently. Obviously, she was able to balance both fear and pain and concern, but also the sense of wonder. Um, but when you think about things that inspire you, Panu, personally, what, what comes up for you? Yeah, several things. Uh, Francis Weller, the American West Coast psychotherapist, who has written profoundly about grief, is one inspiration. And he is using the metaphor of gates of grief. Mm -hmm. So that comes to mind, Thomas, when hearing your metaphor here. And I've really found his work helpful. And in his workshops, there's also people uh, tapping into their feelings of ecological grief, even though they might have come come to the workshop with a different purpose. And of course, these are uh, intertwined, you know, various things that happen in our lives become come intertwined. Then I've been very impressed by Treppe Johnson's work. Mm -hmm. uh, she and colleagues have developed this Radical Joy for Hard Times network. Rad, radicaljoy.org, I think is the website, and this method of what they call guerrilla beauty. But anyway, the idea is to, uh, to get uh, there to go into these wounded natural places, as they call it. And, and being aware of the very human temptation of trying to look, look away and not going somewhere where painful feelings and memories come to mind, but instead going towards them, spending time there together, they even sometimes have a sort of method of liminality, liminality referring to this mm -hmm. sort of rite of passage like space where you step away from ordinary life for a while and then you sometimes step back. So, for example, going on a pilgrimage or a sacred journey is a classic example of a liminal state. And so it's related to this rite of passage thing that you, Thomas, mentioned. But for example, if there's a clear-cut forest which was dear to you, and you may just take a branch and use that to signal a border, a threshold. So crossing that branch, you sort of enter into this liminal space with a clear-cut. You spend time there, you reflect on the feelings, you do things that your body sort of advises you to do and perhaps then also doing something in return like a small gift of beauty that's what what they do with the red joy network and then stepping back over the branch into everyday life so so it's quite creative methodology and has spread into many many countries and i really like the idea of daring to encounter these painful feelings together. Yeah. I, I guess, Thomas, that that resonates with many things in your eco-psychology work in the past decades. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of what I did when I was quite young. I mean, I, I confronted this stuff a long time ago. Um, an interesting, an interesting experience for me is that after I, after I left college and I was still, I still had not had a, my eco-awakening at that point, I was still naive about really the state of the world and living in this bubble uh, of kind of capitalism and kind of anthropocentric um, thinking. And then I went to Alaska and worked in as, as a fisherman in, in Kodiak, Alaska. It was such a wake-up call. I was confronted with 
all of my illusions about what the wild is and about, you know, nature. And I saw this kind of, you know, really utilitarian view of nature in the natural world and what it takes to actually get salmon and, and halibut and cod, the fish that we eat and from Alaska. Mm. And, and, um, you know, I really, I just, so I, I, I had this, you know, this awakening, but I had chosen it. See, this was also like Roe talks about chosen mm, when you yeah. choose something and learn it, it's different than when it's thrust upon you. Mm. It's always nice to come back to our very, very, very first ideas before when we have beginner's mind, before we become educated and read a lot of journals and articles and things like that. Mm. Uh, and I did some projects called postmodern expeditions. I called it where I would actually go when I was living in the Seattle area and Washington uh, state in the, in the, in the U S and, you know, I would go into a clear cut, and then go into um, the the um, old growth. And if you walk around a clear cut area, you can find the edge, and you could walk from the clear cut um, into the forest. And it's um, it's unlike it's unlike anything you, you you typically see because the edge is so stark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's not like walking into a city park where there's a kind mm-hmm. of gradual going deep into the forest. And a clear cut, in some places, you can go from a, a a, a hot, dry, dusty, clear cut that's full of sun and the sun's beating down on you and there's all this slash and and kind of, you know, debris and insects and bu- buzzing and things like that. It's quite hard to hike through a clear cut area because there's no paths. And then as soon as you walk into the mm-hmm. forest, as soon as you walk into the part that's not cut, it becomes silent and cool and you could, and it's muted and you realize, oh, I've stepped into this whole different world it's a whole different ecosystem this uh, uh, you know an old growth forest is is, is immense with huge uh, canopy and and undergrowth and it's kind of hard to describe unless you've done it but i would purposely do this that was my first eco psychology work was pl- plumbing these 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 um, things and or, or canoeing down an industrial river the duwamish river in seattle which is full of you know factories and container ships and things and then going to you know 20 miles south and going on the Nisqually, which is a wildlife refuge and, 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 and paddling through there and realizing this is the same landscape, just two different versions of it. Um, I don't know why I was doing it, but that's what I was called to do. But it, it, you know, once you expand your horizons, then, you know, you're, you're not stuck in this kind of painful innocence. Um, so I think it, to where we go with this is like, how do we, how do we move toward stewardship? restoration understanding regeneration after fires after mount st helens uh, eruption in in washington we learned so much about regeneration of the landscape and about life Mm -hmm. life and nature is tenacious and places will restore themselves Mm -hmm. over time all the places we've lost can and will restore themselves maybe not the same anymore because our climate is changing obviously but that power of restoration, I think, and re- regeneration after a loss, after a fire, can be quite inspiring for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's a very profound experiment and method you you, you mentioned. And I hear a lot of intuition in, in the method and can resonate with many parts of it. There's lots of clear cuts in Finland also. We have uh, 
endless ongoing debates about how to treat forests in in fin- Finland and mm-hmm. uh, when when I was still more involved with uh, with Christian congregations I was sometimes also pretty spontaneously uh, leading grief rituals for clear-cut forests some sometimes so applying sort of what you have into the situation at hand so so that's mm-hmm. that's a glimpse from from my own, own own history related to these these themes, but I really think that uh, the embodied dimension is important here. Going somewhere and then activating your senses, trying to keep the emotions open, and the eminent grief researcher William Warden, who was mentioned mentioned here, him, he's being alive and dynamic and changing the wordings in his talks of grief, which I think is a great sign of following the times. And an earlier formulation of the fourth task was reinvesting emotional energy and life energy. And of course, uh, also around us, the life energy is moving and replenishing, as you as you Thomas say. So I think there's some strength in that formulation. But lately, he's been integrating this framework of continuing bonds and emotionally relocating uh, the lost object or person in one's life. And this is a too large topic to go into depth here now. It's related to things I've been doing in my research also lately. But I think that by going into these wounded natural places or these sort of ambiguous juxtapositions of, for example, the border between Kliekat and a, an old growth forest. Uh, I think that's working through our affective bonds with the modern human world. Mm-hmm. So working through our affective bonds with the modern human world. I think this is what's going on and there's interesting uh, possibilities for integrating grief theories and then ecological grief di- dynamics. Yeah. Yeah, this is such a juicy thing, and we'll we'll keep coming back to this topic. So, listeners, you're taking this in and kind of seeing how it lands for you. I mean, I think the key the key things is that this is not a new idea itself, uh, but the newness is the extent of people that are rapidly coming to grips with this kind of loss of innocence, this waking up syndrome, and um, you know, so it is a kind of adulting for us to let go of the innocence. Uh, it's not that, well, that's not the right word. We don't let go of our innocence. We integrate our innocence with with our maturity and our adult mind. Um, obviously, uh, Kim Stafford, who we just spoke to, the poet, he, he channeled an, a very kind of infectious, beautiful adult kind of innocence in terms of creativity. But there, there is an adulting here where we say we need to take responsibility for this. We are the people that are going to change this. And mm-hmm. it is also a white, uh, somewhat of a white phenomenon. I'm thinking of Sarah, Sarah Ray and, and some of her, her writing about this. You know, the people that are most vulnerable to some of this are privileged because they did have this sense of innocence and a sense of nature is there for me. And these stories and, you know, the childhood stories about how nature is beautiful and all this sort of stuff. Um, and so some of the people that are most privileged are the, are the most vulnerable to these feelings. So we, we don't want to blame the victim. We don't want to say, well, that's your problem because of capitalism and, you, you know, you're first world people, so you should suffer. Although there is an impulse, I think, among some people to, to really hold people's feet to the fire and say, you deserve to suffer now because many other people have suffered. So... You know, listeners can tap into that energy too, but but we don't need to reinvent the wheel. You know, people like 
Louise Chala and David Sobel, some of the educational theorists have looked at at ways to cope, you know, with these kinds of things. Um, Maya Lin has a great, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Maya Lin has a great um, website, What is Missing, which is an online kind of memorial to extinction. And so I think one interesting thing to think about is is our, our own memorials. I was uh, I was talking to Pane before we started. I said, is there is there truly a memorial to extinction? I, I mean like a like a Lincoln memorial style memorial to extinction. There isn't, unfortunately, as far as I know, anywhere in the world. And so that's kind of what we need. And if we had something like that, where people could go and it was publicly recognized from the powers that be, then I think we would feel a little differently about this. But that would be recognizing a huge shadow side of our society, which is, which is difficult. Um, so it it indeed is. And in my 2017 Finnish book, I had a subchapter on memorial places. So this is something also that I've been thinking about for a long time. And in Britain, there's been this quite large project on so-called MIMO, Mass Extinction Memorial Observatory. Mm -hmm. So the original idea was to have a quite conspicuous building, but they uh, ended up in financial difficulties and they are continuing the project in some way, but that was quite an inspiring idea. And then, of course, smaller scale things have been happening, but also together with some artists in Finland, we have been thinking about these memorials for also both climate change, which is a transitional lo loss and change, and then extinction, which is, includes this very so permanent losses also. But perhaps this topic of memorials uh, and, and places is something that we might devote a whole, whole epi episode for at some, some point. Yeah, part of our environmental identity work is is maybe you know creating memorials for things that we've lost, but we do this in our life anyway. We know that we have to let go of certain things in certain times. Um, so ultimately, listeners, you know, we all have to we all have to follow our hearts here. So our minds have this sense of what is and and, and isn't and what should be, but when we get into when we get into a place, there's beauty, there's process, there's life of all different levels, um, and so if we can kind of approach a, a place with fresh eyes, particularly the eyes of a child, you know, as an adult, we, we can tap into different ways of thinking about things, but it is a process and it, I don't want to make it seem easy because if you're just in the, the first emotional stages of this, mm -hmm. this rite of passage, it, it's, it's quite daunting, but in the rite of passage, the classic model, you know, we have to go on this quest we find some friends and some helpers. <laughs> we find some people that can teach us, and then we get some insights. And so that's where we're at with this. We're getting insights, and you know, our podcast is part of our own rite of passage. We go out into these difficult topics and try to bring something back to the world to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. But we're all doing this together, so we'll keep talking about this. But just just know that you're not alone if you feel a barrier to going out to, into nature, and it's it's. It's helpful to find other people that can understand this without either getting too caught in the doom. Mm -hmm. You have to find, you have to right size it. Find people that are resonating in the emotions that you think are growthful and helpful for you. Um, there's a lot of detours where people get stuck in loss, get stuck in anger, get stuck on disorganization, get stuck on numbing themselves. Um, but we want to just feel a sense of the current, keep going in the current of life. Mm. Yeah, definitely so. And 
we have to wrap things up quite soon for this this episode but i want to finish from my part with a lived example of a Finnish young woman who joined a facilitated discussion group on eco-anxiety and she was she was telling telling us that uh, often when she goes to the local woods Uh, that makes her cry because it reminds her of all the ecological destruction. But still, she said, still I go there every night because at the end it still makes me feel, feel better and it being, brings all these good things and reminds of, of care uh, and, and love and so on. So I think that was a very moving example of somebody who was able to past that threshold even though it was still continually painful for her also but in the end it was still worth it and the energy levels were, were higher because she, she did it so good good luck all you fellow travelers over over there yes don't turn your gaze away but but um, be compassionate to these wounded places that you're discovering be compassionate to them because you're the the wounds in the place you know remind us of our own wounds yeah So giving thanks, uh, giving thanks for what we have. Thanks for this opportunity. Kano, I'm always thankful for our discussions and I'm, thank I'm thankful that we have all these other people that really do understand what we're doing and, and that we can look through and that we can learn from. So you all take care and we'll talk to you again soon. The Climate Change and Happiness podcast is a self-funded volunteer effort. Please support us so we can keep bringing you messages of coping and thriving. See the donate page at climatechangeandhappiness.com.